My major pain has, has been invisible. The mobility aid makes it better. It gives me freedom. It can get to the core beliefs we have about ourselves. Don't ever think you're alone. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Caitlin about her chronic illness. Caitlin already has a few diagnoses, a few pieces of her puzzle figured out, but there remains some mysterious elements of her health situation that she is still exploring and trying to find answers for. She's been diagnosed with POTS and gastroparesis. She has some form of hypermobility. She's exploring whether or not it might be hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos or perhaps hypermobile spectrum disorder. She has some sort of neurological situation happening that is currently labeled as FND, Functional Neurological Disorder, but her presentation isn't really lining up with the typical presentation of FND, and her different specialists disagree over whether or not that diagnosis is appropriate. She has a clinical diagnosis of ankylosing spondylitis, but hasn't been able to get doctors to confirm whether or not she has that disease. But a a constant thread throughout Caitlin's story is the horrible treatment she has received at the hands of various medical professionals that she's gone to for help. She's had nurses give her medication without her knowledge because they thought that she was faking her symptoms and they were trying to trick her into proving that she was faking it. Not to mention the neurologist that said one of the most shocking, horrible things that I've ever heard of a neurologist saying to a patient. And I won't spoil it in the intro. I'll let Caitlin explain that to you later. She has lived through some absolutely shocking examples of medical gaslighting. Caitlin is a horseback rider from Yorkshire, so she'll tell us a little bit about what it's like living in the UK, navigating the NHS, which is the National Health Service. Part of her story involves an accident while horseback riding, resulting in excessive lower back pain. And when she had her back looked at, she discovered that she has a spondylolisthesis, which is when one of your vertebrae slips out of place. This is another issue that she's had a really hard time getting doctors to take seriously. So she's just been living with this ever since. I had so much fun talking to Caitlin. The end of this conversation just sort of turned into a commiseration session where we just talked about, you know, all the things we face as chronically ill individuals, seeking care, being constantly hit by medical gaslighting, doctors not taking us seriously, not knowing what's going on in our own bodies, but having to continue to fight and push forward because we really don't have a choice. Caitlin is actually a regular listener of the podcast who reached out on Instagram asking about coming on the show, and I'm so glad she did. I'm honored to be sharing her story today, and we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. I just have to share a huge thank you to everyone who reached out last week to wish me a happy one-year anniversary for the podcast. I heard from a bunch of people, and it was, it was very overwhelming and very gratifying, so thank you all for reaching out. Special thank you to India, who actually appeared on the podcast last week and sent in a donation of $18.96. At least that's what the uh, conversion was, because I know that India is in Canada. Uh, so I really appreciated that gift, India. Thank you so much. That donation was very well-timed because I had a big expense come up this week related to the podcast. So I use uh, studio monitors. They're my speakers that I use to mix the podcast and edit the podcast every week, and one of them died. So I had to replace my speakers. So this is one of those weeks where I'm just so incredibly grateful for all the financial support that I have received putting this podcast together. Um, I I would love some additional help because this was an expensive purchase. So if anyone wants to help pay for the new speakers to keep this podcast going, uh, you can find us on PayPal. 
using the email address majorpainpodcast. And of course, I have to thank our Patreon community because the regular donations that you give to this podcast every month went a huge way towards allowing me to make this purchase to get these speakers in so I didn't miss an episode this week. Uh, So I really, really appreciate that. It's on my credit card. (laughs) I would love a little help to to get all the way, but I I was able to afford a good portion of the speakers with uh, what came in from Patreon this month and this donation from India. So thank you all so much. If you are interested in supporting this show monthly by becoming a Patreon subscriber, head to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. You can sign up for as little as $2 per month and gain access to bonus episodes. Andy and I sit down once a month to record bonus episodes. We'll be doing so in about a week and a half, two weeks from now. And if you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on the next bonus episode, just leave it on Patreon as a comment on the previous bonus episode for the month of April. Extra special thank you to our Patreon producers, Chris Fowler, Steve Cavanaugh, Ensign Q, and Trish O'Brien. Your support is very, very appreciated. Recently, I welcomed our newest patron, my friend Alexandria, to the Patreon community, and she has actually hit a milestone that I wanted to shout out in that her podcast that she does with her sister Whitney, called Twin-ish, just hit their one-year anniversary. So if you haven't checked out the Twinish podcast, I really, really enjoy it. I highly recommend it. You can find it on all the major podcast platforms. It is spelled twin dot 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 space ish. There are two podcasts with similar names, but that's the one you're looking for with Whitney and Alexandria. Um, They cover different topics every week, and it's just a lot of fun. So if you want to support someone who is a big part of supporting this community and also just a fantastic friend, check out the Twinish podcast. I'll remind you, as always, that my guests and I are not healthcare professionals, so please do not take any action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our fantastic conversation with Caitlin about her chronic illness. Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you today. Um, I, from what I've learned about your story, it sounds like it's going to be a really interesting conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a, a long and confusing one, but hopefully we'll get there. Yeah. Well, Caitlin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I'm Caitlin. I'm from Yorkshire in England, and I am 25 years old. I'm a horse rider and an artist. Wow. A, a horse rider and an artist. So tell, tell me about horseback riding. I've seen some of your Instagram photos. Yeah, I started riding when I was six or seven, um, begged for a pony for years and years and years. Um, And then I ended up sneakily buying the pony that I have now, Candy, um, in 2014. So I've just ridden forever, but um, yeah. You you sneakily bought your pony. (laughs) What does that mean? I, I wasn't allowed a pony until I could pay for the pony by myself. Hmm. So... I sneakily bought the pony and kept a secret for 10 months. Um, and then when I eventually, I did tell my parents instead of them finding out, but when I did tell them, I was like, this proves that I can pay for the pony and look after the pony by myself. You can't be mad at me. Um, and it seemed to work out because I'm still here and so is Candy. So, <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. I mean, that you know, you hear about a lot of children saying, I want a pony, but you just, you went for it. You did it. <laughs> yeah, I was determined, very determined. Yeah, amazing. So what what is what does being a horseback rider entail? 
Um, well, for me, it entails uh, everything to do with horses, like looking after them, um, riding, obviously, uh, training from the ground, going to shows, going to training. Um, for me, I don't really do as many shows as I'd like because of uh, money and obviously um, gen- my general situation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just it's all encompassing. When you're a horse person, it just it becomes your life. You don't have time for anything else. Yeah. In a good way. So it's your passion, your hobby, is and and a career. It sounds like. Well, it's it's like therapy. It's both mental and physical therapy. It's amazing. Um, yeah. I don't know who I'd be without horses. To be honest, that's so cool. I actually I forgot about this until until ju- just this second. But I actually took horseback riding lessons when I was a kid. My sister and I used to used to ride horses in San Diego, where we grew up. I I don't know how I forgot about that until just now. Um, so I I do have some experience horseback riding, although it's been a long, long time. Yeah, a lot of people have done a little bit of riding here and there. Um, for me, I'd been begging since I was a child. I think my mum and dad put me on a pony in France when I was three, and then that was it. It was that was their biggest mistake of their lives because <laughs> they put me on a pony three um and i just never grew out of it i just carried on yeah that's awesome what about art you said you're an artist as well yeah that was another thing picked it picked up a pencil when i was i don't know tiny um and again with the love of horses it just evolved i just draw horses all over and i used to have like different characters that i'd draw you know um because i didn't have my own pony so I'd make up a pony that was mine or I'd draw about the horses at the riding school. And yeah, I just did it all the time. And then eventually it just grew, I guess. Yeah. It sounds like your your childhood passions, the things that really sparked your imagination and creativity and passion as a, as a child have just really carried forward in your life. And you just um, really just keep doing them, you know? Yeah, I just stuck with it all this time. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, let's learn about your health situation. So, Caitlin, what is your major pain? So, we have hypermobile spectrum disorder or HEDS. We're not sure. Uh, we have POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. We've got gastroparesis. And we have some kind of neurological thing going on, which is currently set down to be FND, functional neurological disorder. But we are going through some more investigations to see whether that's the right diagnosis for me. So, and that's the confusing part right now. Wow, that sounds so tough. I mean, just knowing what I know about uh, about what you just described, <laughs> I, yeah. this like complicated mess where you're trying to get like a central diagnosis and say like, what is happening? Yeah, we don't know what's separate and what's together. We don't know whether some things are together with the same diagnosis or whether they are entirely different things. Oh. We have no idea. So there are a few little areas where we know the direction that we're going in, but otherwise, we don't know what's connected to what, really. Yeah. Well, let's, okay, take me through this from when did this start and what, what did this, what, like, I want to hear about the symptoms and, and get a sense of exactly what you're experiencing. So, it's a very back and forth story. I fell off a horse in 2010. Um, I kind of... She flipped me over the front of her and then I landed on the arena fence, like the, not a jump fence, just the fence. And imagine a twig snapping over your knee. That's the kind of situation. I had a back protector on and I think that pretty much saved me. Um, I got up, walked away, hobbled away. I was really limping. Um, And I was 
I thought I was too good to go to hospital, so I didn't go. And then three months later, I still wasn't healed. Mm. And they, they took an x-ray and they found out that I had a spondylolisthesis, which is a bone at the bottom of my spine. It slipped forward a little bit into my body um, and, and scoliosis, but the scoliosis was minor. Um, and then I've had that for that for however many years it's been since 2010, 12 years. Um, so that's just been cooking along. And then I've had the hypermobility and it's just kind of evolved. The hypermobility has made my spine hypermobile. So the idea is that my spine might be hypermobile and it might be causing some irritation because I've had an x-ray of my neck and that showed hypermobility in my neck and neck instability as well okay so, so when, when you say like if you imagine a like a twig uh breaking over your knee is is like is are you your body hitting this fence and the fence breaks is that is that what we're talking about it's me bending backwards over the fence oh i so, see but i had a back protector on so that kind of saved it from being as bad as it could have been okay so a bone was like ripped out of position but not broken so yeah. it's like you almost yeah. broke your back there is actually <laughs> it's so hard to explain yeah. <laughs> um so you've got you've got the main body of the bone that's in in your spine and then there's the little joints that come off the back of it that connect it to the next part of the spine mm -hmm. and for me this little joint has broken away and it's called a pars defect or a pars break some people can have it from like a birth defect, but we're pretty sure that it's from when I fell off the horse because we had, I had nothing before that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's like it could have been there forever, but you probably would have noticed pain or, or, or issues yeah. and you never had to look there until after you have this accident and then you find this, this, this thing out of place. So yeah. why, why is it that they can't put it back in place? Um, they, they technically can. Um, it happens a lot in the U.S., but here it's not considered significant, which has been part of my issue. Um, I don't know how a broken bone with a slipped bone in your spine can't be con considered significant, but that is currently the case. Wow. Um, I've talked to a lot of people with it um, in the English groups and a few horse rider friends who have also have it and we're completely baffled as to why, but that is currently what it's like, I guess. That's very frustrating. What What are the mm. symptoms of that? Do you f Do you have constant pain from that? Yes, I have constant low back pain. Um, it can cause spasm up my back. Um, this is can be gross to some people, but the spine, the bone actually clunks around. So I can tense certain muscles when I lay down at night. I have to tense certain muscles so that it clunks back so that I can lay flat. Um, and then I have a lot of like leg symptoms. Um, the usual, like numbness, a uh, bit of proprioception issues, um, feeling really heavy, legs, a uh, little bit of sciatica, but mostly just general nerve pain down the legs, wow. um, altered feelings, stuff like that. Yeah, proprioception, that's a word I learned recently. That's, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to remember exactly what that means. That's like the, the sensory information from your legs doesn't quite match up with your experience of where you are. Is that yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so how old were you when that accident happened? Uh, I was 13 or 13. 13 or 14. Yeah. And, and how old mm. are you now? 25. 
Wow. So it's been over a decade since you had this accident and your body changed overnight. Um, You've been in pain ever since. And that's just like the beginning of this health journey. Yeah. Yeah. That's like the first thing really came up. Yeah. So when did the hypermobility start? Um, To backtrack a little bit, I was working in a restaurant and the back pain started. Um, and I knew about the the spondees, it's short and tough, um, but I kind of just assumed we'll just carry on. I was riding at the time, and over time, this back pain got worse. I took on more shifts for the morning, and um, over Christmas, I took on a lot of shifts, and it's a lot of heavy work uh, carrying trays and stuff, and the back pain just got worse and worse and worse. And one shift, it got so bad, I finished, and I could not. I, wa- I, I lived two minutes away from where I work. And I could not walk home. I couldn't even get up. I'd sat down. I could not get up. And I had my dad come and carry me home. So I then went to a rheumatologist. Um, I was referred. And they assumed it was ankylosing spondylitis. And they gave me an anti-inflammatory. Um, and within, I think it was like two weeks of the anti-inflammatory kicking in, I went from so stiff that I couldn't even bend like slightly forward or barely walk to being able to bend over forward and touch my hands flat to the floor, which is a classic like EDS hypermobility sign. And it basically revealed how hypermobile my spine actually was after it all seized up. Okay, so you had this injury and then you get more and more back pain over time and then your your back kind of starts to lock up so you can't even bend anymore. Um, and then, I'm yeah, we did an episode about ankylosing spondylitis and that that's when you're... Uh, your like calcification, right? Where your yeah, the immune system attacks the spine. Okay, and um, so things actually actually lock and like can't move anymore, yeah. right? But here is where it gets a bit confusing. We don't know whether I have ankylosing spondylitis right now because they diagnosed me clinically because I was twenty at the time, um, and they didn't expect any changes to show up on X-ray or MRI, and obviously it didn't. Um, but because the anti-inflammatories worked, they've kept me on them, but they can't tell me or not whether I have ankylosing spondylitis. So yeah, so it sounds like they're not taking your original injury seriously. They can't tell you whether or not you have an autoimmune condition that's going to continue to to lock things together. Um, This sounds very frustrating so far. (laughs) It gets worse. It it gets worse. So, because your body responded so well to the anti-inflammatory medications, then you discover that you're actually hypermobile. You go from being sort of immobilized to being hypermobile. Um, so, you either have something that's causing rigidity or hypermobility, and you're not really necessarily yeah. even sure which. Yeah, it's like Schrodinger's, I don't know, Schrodinger's instability. I don't know. <laughs> Schrodinger's back pain. <laughs> yeah, literally, that, that's the one. Okay. Wow. So, okay. So, so once you find out you're hypermobile, they started investigating um, EDS. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they just basically um, in England, again, we're not very well funded, which is fair enough. So they don't want to send people to a geneticist unless it's uh, vascular or they think it's going to be vascular or classical or any of the others that are like threat to life. Mm. Um, obviously, Hypermobility, spectrum disorder, and hypermobile EDS are, you know, a pain um, and they can cause horrible problems. 
um but unless they're not they're not the same in like risk to life as like vascular because you can obviously have um i can't remember but you can have really really nasty things that can kill you very quickly so they want to make sure that they've got that you know under control but they're very it's very obvious usually if you are vascular um so they don't want to kind of refer people out to geneticists um if they might not need to be kind right. of thing so that's yeah, the, that's the same here yeah, yeah, I, they I, just kind of look me as hypermobile, um, and just you know try to support me. I didn't, uh, uh, as far as the diagnosis goes, it wouldn't change how they were treating me. They treat me as if I have, um, you know, hypermobile EDS. Yeah, there's no point in spending the money of the NHS's money to define which one it is, which I'm happy with. That's fine by me. This actually lines up with my experience. I just talked to a doc, a new doctor recently about. Um, I was Danlos asking if I could be tested and we talked about the genetic testing and I clearly don't have like the vascular type that you were talking about. Yeah. Um, and they, my, my understanding is they still don't even have genetic tests for the hypermobile yeah. variety. So it's almost, research, I think, yeah, so like, it, it's a clinical yeah. diagnosis. It, has that been sort of your experience that you just, it, you have these clinical diagnoses, but you still don't necessarily feel like you know what's happening for eds yes that that's been absolutely fine for me um it's led to the right treatment and the right help that i've needed in that in that vein um but for fnd it hasn't um i would i would take fnd as being what i have because it means that i've not got anything that's damaging my spine and you know causing problems basically that have an organic uh, cause um, because even if it is FND, there's still real symptoms. We just don't know why. That's a really good point is that if you're, if you have a clinical diagnosis and you, you, you go down the path of treating, you know, having the doctors try to help you treat and it helps, that's a really good sign that you're on the right track. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. you mentioned uh, hypermobile spectrum disorder. What I, that's something yeah. I'm not familiar with. What's the difference between that and hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos? Honestly, I'm not 100% sure, so I'm just going to give you what, what they told me um, at the clinic. Um, basically, if you've got any level of hypermobility comes on a spectrum, so we've got all the way from very benign hypermobility where you have the odd joint that would be considered double-jointed um, all the way up to your EDS and your very severe EDS where they literally cannot keep a joint in the shoulder kind of thing that kind of remit and hypermobility spectrum disorder is a certain part of the spectrum and then once you get certain um like symptoms i guess like criteria it becomes eds like hypermobile eds um but again because they don't know the genetics of it all they're still researching whether hypermobile spectrum disorder and EDS come under the same, mm. if that makes any sense at all. It's all very up in the air because obviously they still don't have the genetics to it all. Yeah, interesting. Because obviously you can't officially diagnose HEDS without ruling other stuff out, as far as I'm aware. They said to me that even people with hypermobile spectrum disorder, it doesn't actually mean that you are not worse off or not as valid i guess as, as someone with heds um because they know people with heds in the same clinic that treats me that are out doing all sorts i mean i know i ride horses but 
they don't have like the same kind of dislocations as I do and they don't have the comorbidities even that I do and then there's people with HSD who have such horrid gastroparesis that they can't eat at all can't not can't even have a tube feed they're on TPN um so it is still so not even understudied because it does seem like they're studying it a lot but it's still there's so much we don't know yet yeah totally what tell me more about your um your presentation of of EDS you mentioned like joints dislocating yeah so um again with um it might be easier to go back to when I started yeah. uh, back at work. I found out about hypermobility. I had um, quite a while off um, because I was still in a lot of pain with my back and I had a lot of physio and stuff like that. Um, and then I went back to work. I can't remember how long for, only a few months. Um, and I'd just got ready to um, get Candy ready to ride for the winter. We have to shave them. So I just spent the evening doing that, ready to get her ready and we got really fit and we were ready to do things and I was feeling really strong and I went home and I sat on the sofa and I'm watching TV and I relaxed just a little bit too much and my shoulder fell out of its socket. Wow. <laughs> I went to A&E. Um, I managed to put it back by myself um, but I still went to A&E because that was the first time um, that I really noticed the shoulder instability that I have. Um, but yeah. That, that was like the first um, start. And then I noticed that my elbows locked a lot. Um, I had problems with my hips being really sore. Um, my ankles would roll all the time when I was a kid. And you know when you kind of look back and you notice all these things from childhood? And I think, I think EDS came up somewhere um, in media somewhere. Mm -hmm. And we like, kind of looked at it and was like, oh, my God. Yeah, that, that sounds like me. Um, and I knew I needed to be at a rheumatologist for the AS, um, and they kind of evaluated me and did the bait and score where they scored me. Um, and I'm not massively hypermobile in the scoring joints, um, the ones that they usually score for. So my knees don't bend back that much, um, but my kneecaps like to do a little dance. Uh, my elbows do bend back a little bit. Um, I can't do the wrist a little bit. When you pull your thumb down yeah, to your I mean, wrist. Yeah. Well, you're way further yeah. than I am. I can't even go that far at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my back's really, really hypermobile. My hips are hypermobile. My shoulders are hypermobile. Um, my neck. I got called an owl in A&E because I have a really good range of mo motion in my neck. What is A&E? Uh, accident and emergency. So that's like the ER, I think. Ah, okay, great. Thank you. Okay, so you're very clearly hypermobile. <laughs> yeah. yeah, randomly uh, hypermobile, but not in the ones that they score me from. So I was mm. basically put at a hypermobile spectrum disorder, uh, which is still, um, I'm still treated by the same people who treat the uh, EDS. What, what are your comorbidities? So there is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which I believe you've done a podcast on, and gastroparesis, which I think you also did one on. I'm sure I've listened to them both. We talked to uh, Nolan, who has gastroparesis. Well, actually, a few people who have gastroparesis. Um, we've never done one just focusing on that, but we've talked about it a couple times. And yeah, several of their, our guests have had POTS. I'm actually, yeah. I actually found out recently that I might yeah. have POTS and I'm going to... I your TikTok, I think. Yeah, yeah. I posted about it on TikTok and I'm hopefully getting <laughs> tested soon. But yeah, and mine seems to be like coming and going because I continue to, to check it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And and I thought for a second, I'm like, do I have EDS? You know, like there's, yeah, you know. Well, it's worth looking into, isn't it? For sure. And I, I talked to the doctor about it and she really doesn't think so. Um, I have this new doctor who's fantastic and I, I'm not hypermobile. And I also yeah. like, don't seem to have the, uh, like the clear signs of the other forms of EDS. Yeah. Um, so she's really feeling like that's not the direction, but it is still on the table that if we, if we strike out with all the diagnostic stuff we're doing, then we're t still talking about doing like a full paying out of pocket for a full genome sequencing, um, which would show the, the other forms yeah, of, yeah. of EDS, but it does, it doesn't look like I have that. Um, yeah. But they are testing me for like mast cell um, activation yeah, syndrome. Totally appear on its own. Um, it really can appear on its own. Yeah. I, I don't know whether we got POTS for me before we found out the EDS. I can't remember how it went. It was all around the same time, but it can, it can appear on its own um, yeah. or related to things. Yeah. It's so frustrating because like, you know, I, our, our first episode about um, EDS, we talked about the EDS triad with Morgan, yeah, with yeah. POTS, Mast Cell, and um, Ehlers-Danlos, Hypermobile hyper in, her, uh, in her case. So I'm like, if I have POTS and like I have all these weird allergic reactions, maybe I have Mast Cell, does that mean I have the EDS triad? But it doesn't look like it, you know? And that's why all these things are so hard is because like they overlap. I'm learning now that, you know, there are like parasitic infections that can affect your heart rate and potentially like do things similar to POTS or even bacterial infections. Uh, and it's just like, it's just a nightmare, you know, it's just a nightmare trying to figure out exactly what's happening in each individual person's body because there's so many options. Some things look like other things. Some things are clinical. Some things are, are you know more like direct testing where like you can only confirm it through blood tests and stuff like that. And some things aren't. So it's just like, what, what do I do? Where do I go? I don't know. You know, we just really need a doctor to guide you through this because yeah. trying to diagnose yourself is like next to impossible. It's just absolutely maddening. Oh, well, speaking of diagnosing yourself, <laughs> basically I, after I saw something in the media about EDS, something about POTS came up and I used to, I've been getting the dizzy spells that come with POTS for as long as I can remember. But when I stopped uh, working at the restaurant and I stopped riding as much, I like deconditioned and it got so much worse. Mm. So I already had an idea of it once I realized what was going on. So I started recording like what you did, but with an app on my phone um, my heart rate and doing like a poor man's tilt table test is what they call it. Yeah. Um, and I think I did it for over a month um, and it was getting that bad that I, like, I couldn't really stand up and I was falling and stuff like that. Um, whereas before it was just like, a, this is inconvenient. Um, and then I just carry on with my day. So it had got, it got quite bad. Um, I remember it getting quite bad. Um, and then I took that to the cardiologist, obviously having been referred from my GP to the cardiologist and said, uh, look, this is what I've done. You know, here you go. Um, doctors don't tend to like it if you suggest what you think it might be. Um, but I just said I noticed that my heart rate goes up when this happens. Um, and he immediately did the poor man's tilt table in the office hmm. um, and said, yeah, I think I have an idea. Um, it's not going to. It's not going to, you know, hurt you kind of thing. It's not dangerous. Um, we're going to do a heart rate monitor to confirm. So I had a heart rate monitor 24 hours. Um, and then I had a blood pressure 24 hours and a tilt table test 
I love which came back for POTS. That was probably my quickest diagnosis, to be honest. Um, but like I said, I had an idea of what of what it was. Um, and that did happen quite quickly. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I, that's something that I that I that I love about this podcast, you know, this idea that you can hear about things that you can then like take to your doctor and ask to be tested about. And like you're saying, like Ellis Danlos came up in the media. I first heard about it from RuPaul's Drag Race when one of the contestants, yeah. Evie Oddly, had uh, EDS and was was talking about it. And you know, just the more the more I learn about different diseases, and it, it's. On one hand, it's like, wow, these are things that we could be tested for and look at and potentially find some answers. But on the other hand, it's like, everything seems too similar and it's very overwhelming. And how do we parse through what is worth pursuing? Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, POTS is like, POTS alone is very, de very debilitating. Just like, oh, it's so disabling. It really is. Yeah. Like, I'm on two different, I'm on a steroid and um, a medication that's usually used for heart failure. Um, so and i cannot function without them along with like electrolytes and compression and everything like i cannot i cannot be upright for any amount of time without them it's insane how disabling it can be yeah when it's you know considered benign i mean it's safe but it's disabling yeah i mean and that just like that really makes me angry that doctors consider that benign. You know, this whole idea mm. that if something isn't killing you immediately, it is not a concern. That is mm. dumb. You know, like yeah. that is the worst. The like I've been running into that for years. It's like, well, you're not dying. We don't know what it is, but it's not killing you. So, uh, so we're, so there's nothing else we can do right now. We have to focus on our patients who are, who are dying. Yeah. And I understand like, yes, focus on the patients who are dying. Let's please try to save their lives. But at the same time, like I, I haven't been able to work for over five and a half years. I've got like a couple hours of energy a day, if that. I spend so much time in pain, lying down, dizzy. I'm like every time I try to exercise, it makes me feel like I've been poisoned. It's like, can we please? Can I please get some help because I would like to live? You know, it's it's not just being alive. I'd like to actually live my life. You know. Yeah. So many doctors get it wrong when they're describing it to you, because I've had maybe one or two. That have actually described it how it should be described in that you know don't worry this on its own can't kill you doesn't mean that you're not affected by it whereas others have been like this is benign why are you even doing here this this can't kill you go away don't waste nhs time yeah. don't waste our money um some of them are, are horrific at it i mean yeah and ugh. you know now that this now that we're starting to talk to people in other countries it's very upsetting to learn that a lot of the problems that we have in the United States with healthcare also exist in other countries. But tell tell yeah. me a little bit about uh, NHS and and your experience navigating that. The the is it National Healthcare System? Is that what that stands for? National Health Service. Okay, I was I close. <laughs> yeah, I like that sounds about right. Maybe. Um, yeah, it's the National Health Service. Um, it was founded after the World War, I believe. One of the World Wars. Um, and we, well, it is, it is free at the point of service. So we don't have to pay for it when we go in, um, but we do pay for it through, the, through our taxes. So our tax money goes towards funding the NHS. Um, it is chronically underfunded. Um, even before COVID, it was chronically underfunded. Um, so it is flawed. I mean, people within the NHS are amazing and they do amazing jobs. The majority of them do. Um, but you, you can only do so much when you've only got so much funding 
and so much permissions, basically. Um, so the way you get through the NHS, unless you, you know, have a few certain conditions um, that are common, is very convoluted um, and you have to fight a lot for it. Um, it doesn't just come to you very easily. This is kind of like a, a um, like a public insurance option, basically, like a... Um... I suppose, yeah. We don't have to, like, pay for any insurance and we don't, we don't pay directly to the NHS. We pay our taxes, like, to the government and then the government allocates money to the NHS. So I think if we had more of a chance, more of a choice to what we paid for, I think it would be better funded. So um, is, is there a private insurance system in the UK where you can pay yeah, out of pocket yeah. for, for, you know, like yeah. fancier insurance, I guess? Yeah, we have like private hospitals, um, private like physiotherapists and stuff like that. Um, the only insurance company that I can think of off the top of my head that we get adverts for here is Bupa. Um, and... I would not be able to be insured under those because I have so many pre-existing conditions. Hmm. Um, I mean, going private has been a thing for me, but it's a lot of money. So, and you yeah. do have to pay out of pocket, basically. Right. And, and yeah, that's interesting that, you know, we, when I was a kid, pre-existing conditions would prevent you from being able to get insurance and that's changed in the United States. Yeah. It's like a postcode lottery here um, is what we call it. Like it depends on where you are as to what services are best funded like i'm really really lucky that not in my small town but the next like town city over there is a specialist pots clinic hmm. and some people don't have access to that but i do and it's like half an hour away and i've been seen with them ever since i got diagnosed um whereas uh with gastroparesis the only like proper specialist is in london and i live five hours away from london um which is a lot for English people because I know Americans can drive for like five hours and it's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't prefer it, but <laughs> so tell me more about your uh, gastroparesis. Right. Well, um, again, something I saw in social, in social media, um, I think it was like the rise of chronic illness vloggers. Um, when I found out I had POTS and when I had uh, the EDS diagnosis, um, I had had, a few years prior, a lot of um, nausea, like throwing up, um, it actually connected to the pots. I was going to college and when I would have my breakfast in the morning, I would be sat down the whole, the whole time and then I'd get up to go to college and immediately feel dizzy and then throw up. And that was because the pots and the gastroparesis um, together and we thought it was anxiety. So mm. that was written off as anxiety while I was at college. And then a few years, I was fine. Um, it comes and goes and flares. Um, so when I saw all this on the on social media, I was thinking, oh, wow, I've got EDS and I've got POTS. Thank goodness I don't have uh, gastroparesis. That looks awful. Um, I think I jinxed myself <laughs> because as time went on, I just could eat and eat less. Like it was, I'd get more full. I'd feel sick all the time. Um, I stopped being able to throw up. I don't know why. I'm one of the people with gastroparesis who can't throw up. So once it's in, whether it doesn't like me or not, it's in there for good, <laughs> which can sometimes be a curse. Um, but yeah, so I lost a lot of weight through the year of being diagnosed with EDS and POTS just gradually um, from like dwindling portion sizes. And then it got really bad. I can't remember 
I can't remember how it got how it got to that point. Um, but I ended up seeing a gastroenterologist um, at the next city over the same place where the has the pots clinic. Um, and we kind of I kind of did think, what if this is gastroparesis? Like I've got the pots, I've got the EDS um, or HSD. What, what if it is gastroparesis? But I'm not throwing up like like all these people do on social media. But I have the, the same symptoms um, with the nausea and everything. So I asked her um, and then that was the mistake. Could it be gastroparesis? And she said, no, that only happens to old people with diabetes. So I was like, okay. <laughs> um, we went away for a while and I was getting worse. So we found some studies. Uh, we had to we had to Google some studies that linked POTS to gastroparesis because obviously it is all like autonomic uh, related. And I think we had one that linked it to EDS. Um, and we took that with us. Um, and we said, I, I basically said to her, um, a gastro, gastric emptying study would rule it out at least. So yeah, I had the, the gastric emptying study and I got a letter in the post to say that I had delayed gastric emptying, gastroparesis, um, and that she discharged me. Oh, my God. Okay, wait, I have questions. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is only the start. I have questions. Okay. <laughs> um, walk me through a gastric emptying study. What, what did they do? Okay. And what are they looking so for? So a gastric emptying study is you eat, um, depending on whether you can eat or not at that point, I could eat bits and bobs. You have uh, radioactive food stuff. So you can have egg uh, porridge or sometimes it's a drink. But for me, I had egg. Um, and then they x-ray your stomach for four hours. Um, they do it every 15 minutes. I think it, it's a bit more than that in the first hour or something, but it was a long time ago. Um, and basically, they are looking for a certain amount to have exit your stomach within two hours and then four hours. Um, and I can't remember off the top of my head, um, but it has to be a significant amount. It's not like little bits that are left over. Um, so and they did say that the amount left in your stomach after four hours doesn't actually tell the extent of the gastroparesis. It just kind of tells you whether on that given day, you are suffering from the symptoms of gastroparesis. Okay. So some people have several gastric emptying studies and one will come back clear and then the next one. So it's a bit awkward, but mine showed gastroparesis on that day. And remind me again, the, the, the definition of gastroparesis. Uh, it's paralysis of the stomach. Right. right. Um, paralysis. Like okay. So yeah, basically like your stomach is not, is not like moving food through. Yeah, from being a bit weak to completely stopped. Um, most people probably only have like the um, like weak stomach muscles. Um, and then when it does get a bit more severe, it can't move at all. That's when everything stays in your stomach. Oh, that just gets sounds so awful. And what do you do once you... Okay, so first of all, you get a letter in the mail <laughs> diagnosing yeah. your gastroparesis. And being and you're also discharged at the same time. It's like, oh yeah, we figured it out you have gastroparesis. Have a great life. 
Yeah, basically, I I just think she didn't like me for telling her how to do her job. Um, so, yeah, I had no support or anything, no medications. Um, so we just went and Googled it for, you know, how we kind of manage it at home. And that's what I did. So I was diagnosed November 2018. Um, and then in, in May 2019, I lost one of my horses. Um, and stress is a really big trigger for gastroparesis. So in May, I lost Bellamy um, and it was very traumatic. So I obviously had to grieve him. And over time, it didn't just happen straight away. Over time, my stomach just, just stopped. Wow. Um, so I was consuming less and less um, to the point where I couldn't drink like a, a half pint of water a day. That was, I couldn't even... Um, and I don't, like I said, I don't throw up, but, uh, when my stomach gets slow, it turns out my throat stops as well. So instead of throwing it back up, like a lot of people do, um, I can't swallow it down. So it got to the point where I could not swallow. It was like, I was so full all the way up to my throat that I couldn't swallow anything more down. Wow. So I couldn't even drink a glass of water a day. And I ended up, we went to the doctor, more, more gaslighting. We went to the, to the GP four times in one week because my mum was really scared that I was going to keel over and they sent me away three times and said you're not dehydrated enough yet you're not malnourished enough yet your BMI is still only just underweight um so we're not going to do anything and then on the last day before I was admitted uh we went in I think we went in like four or five days in a row something like that every single day we booked an appointment an emergency emergency appointment appointment and went in and on the last day she was doing the checks and whatever and was like yeah you're dehydrated enough I'll ring the ward and we'll get you straight in (laughs) you're not dying yet we need you to be more dying before we can treat you So so I was literally they said they said that oh yeah you're on death's door now so basically, now you can come in. Yeah, <laughs> it's I was, so stupid. I know. I was so poorly, and I just couldn't. I couldn't even fight him. My mum was doing all the fighting. Bless her, she's been amazing. Um, but it's not until you look back that you realise how ridiculous it is. Yeah, but yeah. I was so. I was really dehydrated. I was at that point. I was only. I don't know whether to mention weight, but I wasn't that much under um, the underweight BMI. Like I was malnourished by my bloods when they did my bloods, um, but my weight was not too bad. Um, but I was very, very, very dehydrated. So they stuck me straight on um, straight on fluids and put me in a ward. Um, I can't remember much of it because I was that poorly. Like I yeah. was out of it for a, a good few days. Um, and then I went up to the gastro ward um, and the nurses didn't treat me very well because they thought that I was purposefully not eating like mm-hmm. I was, you know. It, it doesn't it doesn't make it the right way to treat someone. No. It wouldn't have been right even if I wasn't, but that's why they was that's why they were treating me badly. Right. Um they were just awful to me. It was only two weeks I was in there. By the the end of the first week, they decided to give me a nasal tube, which was an NG. And we told them that an NG wouldn't work because we already knew what it was. It was gastroparesis and feeding into my stomach. What's an NG? Nasal gas. 
gastric tube. Okay. Um, so with gastroparesis, it's feeding into the stomach anyway. It's only by passing through. Okay. Um, so, and the problem is the food being in the stomach or liquids even being in the stomach because at that point it was liquids for me. And we told them it wouldn't work. Um, and then ensured a traumatic tube placement where they left the guide wire in and it irritated a nerve in my face. Um, and it's the worst pain I've ever been in my life. And I don't remember most of it. Um, and then they tried to start me on tube feeds, but because my stomach wasn't able to digest it, it just rejected it and it sent me out in massive loads of hives. It was it was so strange. So they had to put the rate all the way down. So it was useless anyway. Um, and then I got refeeding syndrome for like 24 hours because they didn't bother giving me the uh, vitamins that they're supposed to give you, the vitamins and electrolytes, because if you've not eaten for a long time and then you start getting loads of nutrients, it can throw off your electrolytes and basically like kill you. So Whoa. I was feeling really well. What is re refeeding syndrome? What is that? Yeah. Um, from what I know of it, it's basically you, when you don't eat or don't drink and whatever for a long time, um, it sends the electrolytes weird in your body, like you nutrients and whatever oh so as in like you like you haven't been eating and now you're eating again as in refeeding yeah. not like you're re-eating the thing you already ate that's what i was imagining <laughs> no yeah no it, it like sends your body to shock kind of thing um it like makes your electrolytes out of balance and it can affect your heart and stuff because you need a certain amount of potassium or something to make your heart work properly yeah i can't remember the the, the all of it but one of the symptoms is you literally you feel like you're going to die and you're like you really feel like you're going to die like the sense of doom yeah um and i have that so but some of the neurology stuff ties into this um but that was all while that was happening um and they sent me into an mri machine and i literally thought i was going to die in the mri machine and then they took me back out and finally gave me the drugs so but again this is because they weren't treating me like I was, they were treating me like I was doing it on purpose. Um, so we put in a complaint then, I think. Um, and then they decided to try and trick me. So I'd got the feeding tube in and I'd been ordering food every time um, the people came round with the food because she had to, taking literally the tiniest mouthful and then feeling sick. So not having anything else. So they decided to trick me by putting medication down the tube because when they put the tube down, it made my throat really swollen and I couldn't swallow my pills that I had anyway. So they were crushing them or using the liquid form and putting them down the tube. And it turns out they used a medication that I'm on now called procalipride, which makes your stomach move. Um, it's actually for like your intestines, but, but the, the bystanding effect is that it also makes your stomach empty as well. Um, they put that down the tube expecting me to then you know feel really hungry and you know for it to for it to work its magic and then for me to deny food when they ask you know when they give it to me or just not eat it when they gave it to me um and within half an hour i was asking if they could bring me some food because i was so hungry and i'd not been hungry forever um and after that suddenly every nurse was my best friend and couldn't do anything more for me wow so yeah and then that's when they were like, oh, yes, maybe she does have the thing that she was diagnosed with. So, um, yeah. And I've been on that medication that's ever so since. Upsetting. So they just didn't, they straight up just didn't believe you 
you you had a diagnosis of gastroparesis already. They just didn't believe you. They assumed that you were, you know, just purposefully not eating. And it wasn't until they tried to trick you and you passed their test that they finally believed you. You mentioned that mm-hmm. you put in a complaint. What What is involved in that? And like, what has come of that? Uh, well, there's a, a system, a service within the NHS called PALS Patient Advice and Liaison Service. Um, and basically we, you know, contacted them and said what was going on. Um, and there's kind of an option where they can investigate it or they can kind of apologize um, and like learn from it. So basically they took the route of apologizing um, to me and to, the, to my family and, you know, doing better. And at the time we couldn't be bothered to go any further than that seeing as they did apologize. Um, and my care picked up after that as a result. So that did work that time. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes that's all you want is just like, hey, you guys need to acknowledge that, you know, you, you messed up and it caused harm. And I'm coming to you for help. And this whole this whole system of people not being believed is so, so harmful in so many different ways. And this is this is one that I've, you know, unfortunately heard multiple times as well that like people weren't believed when they came in with with, you know, symptoms of not being able to eat. But but like you said, I mean, even if someone is not eating on purpose, that is still like something that that person could use some help with. And exactly. Yeah. To be treated like you know, to be treated like it's their fault and that they don't deserve care is so messed up. It's just awful, no matter what the cause is, you know? Exactly. It should be trying to help either way, but yeah. they weren't. So I'm curious about the, the time. So you were diagnosed with gastroparesis and then discharged, and then it wasn't until your horse passed away and your stress level went up that your, that your gastroparesis just stopped your stomach moving entirely. How were you getting by in that meantime? You mentioned that you were kind of just doing some research and trying to treat yourself. Um, I tried Weight Watchers milkshakes. They were a bit filling. I tried um, electrolyte like supplement powders. Um, there is a brand of like sports um, hydration, sports nutrition that you get in the general supermarkets, and they had like electrolyte slash energy, you know, sachets. I don't have any. I wish I had some to show you. But they have like vitamins and whatever in and they're supposed to be for like working out and stuff. Um, And basically I lived off of those. Wow. Because I had no other support. Wow. That's so upsetting. Uh, And so then once you finally get the support that you need, um, you mentioned that you're on this medication now that helps to keep your stomach moving. Is that has that been enough to allow you to uh, eat normally? Um, I wouldn't say normally. I'm still on. Uh, nutritional like drinks that are powders and you mix them with water because milk's too thick um i have sachets for protein that are in here somewhere um and then i have anti-sickness medication i have the procalipride which i was originally on and then i also have domperidone which is another one that i have that basically i take before a meal to kind of get my stomach moving before a meal and kind of work it but even then i don't have full-size meals i can't eat like a normal person my age would i have i mostly go by on like snacks and then the nutritional support that i've been given okay so like eating smaller amounts throughout the day instead of like main meals yeah yeah 
What about the neurological piece? I know that this might be the the piece that's still kind of under investigation, trying to figure out what's going on. But what are the, what are the symptoms of that? Um, so I get like weakness in my legs. It's sort of like the longer I'm up, the more tired I am. Um, in my legs, my legs get heavy. Uh, again, the proprioception uh, can be an issue. Uh, that's only when it's like at its worst. Um, what else? I used to have a lot of like muscle tremors, but they've like calmed down now. Um, yeah, just a bit of a bit of everything, really. So, are you? Is your feeling that there is something left undiscovered? I mean, you've you've been through so much, and you've been diagnosed with with several <laughs> things, and it's so hard to know what's causing what inside of that. Are you feeling like there's something missing? I think so. the The thing with the neurology side of things it's been rumbling under the whole time so while all of that was going on it's almost like you're experiencing it how i was while all of that was going on it was just there just a little bit and i never noticed it like i should have done so in 2017 when i found out my spine was hypermobile i tried to sit on the horse again and my right leg just wouldn't wouldn't do what I wanted it to do. It wasn't quite as strong, but I was still managing okay day to day. I didn't feel the weakness day to day. I was tired in general. I put it down to that. You know, like you might know when it first starts, you just feel like you're a bit more, that your legs are just a bit more tired than the rest of your body. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of, when you've got other things happening, you just assume it's related to that. And it wasn't until 2019 where I had to walk a certain distance to get to the field i was noticing the longer i walked the more dead my legs felt like if you fall if you fall asleep on your arm and your arm goes to sleep you've still got an arm you can still feel that you've got an arm but it's just asleep and it's not quite it doesn't quite move or grasp like you want it to do it's like that kind of thing that, so that sounds very familiar to me it's like sending yeah. the signals to your legs and they're not quite responding and then the, yeah. the more tired you get it just like responds less and less to the point where sometimes you like try to send a signal to your legs and they'll just like ignore you entirely and don't do yeah. anything. Yeah. yeah. I experienced yeah. that a lot as well. And like people will hear this and say like, yeah, the, the longer you're on your legs, the more tired you get. Yeah. That's normal. That's not what we're talking yeah. about here. It's like no. trying it's to do like basic activities early in the day um, or anytime throughout the day, like after resting, you know, it's not that mm -hmm. it's not that you're just, you know, it's not that you just ran a marathon and your legs are tired. It's that like, you're trying to get up and moving and you can't quite get the, the stuff to work. It's like if me and someone else walked down the same hallway, they would walk down the hallway as it is. I would walk down the hallway and it would feel like the hallway is full of treacle up to my waist. And I have <laughs> to walk with treacle or tar or anything else that's sticky and very draggy. That kind of thing. Yeah. It's It's... It's like you, you've got an extra weight to you that you've got to pull along with you kind of thing. Totally. Yeah, I've experienced that for sure. For me, it's like, uh, like I'll look at the distance that I have to walk. Like, let's just say you're like walking and you see you walk down a block, you look down at the end of the block and you're just walking and that's fine and it's normal. Um, but then on a day where your legs aren't working as well, you look down at the end of the block and it's like that thing in a movie where they zoom in on your yeah. face and they zoom out at the same time. So... Um, it's Where the like whole longer and longer exactly. and longer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're just like that. That that block feels impossibly far. 
you know, just yeah. like I have to walk that far. Like there's no way I'm going to make it, you know? <laughs> and I'm, I'm getting, it sounds like you, you have some issues like falling down and like strength yeah, giving like out sometimes. A bit, a bit of a balance issue. Yeah. Um, my falls are mostly, I mean, a few have been from where the pots has been make it made me dizzy. And then I've not had the strength to correct myself well enough. Right. When you get used to it, you kind of know how to drop to your knees a bit more, so you're a bit safer. Um, and again, other times it's just like I've lost the balance and then not had the strength to correct myself. Yeah, totally. Yeah, this sounds very familiar. And it's tricky yeah. because, like, without knowing what's causing what, you know, like a- any number of things could be causing that. And mm-hmm. it's possible that, you know, I- I've been thinking about this for myself is like, is it possible that if I have POTS, that part of that issue is is POTS? It's like I'm not getting the blood flow to my brain, so my brain can't send the signals that yeah, it's trying to yeah. send. Maybe. I don't know. But when, when I was researching, um, well, when my doctor was like looking into my copper levels and we thought I might have Wilson's disease, mm-hmm. I learned a little bit about how uh, sometimes you're, if your liver is having a problem, it can make your legs feel weak. So it's mm-hmm. like, is it my brain? Is it my liver? Is it my blood flow? Is it is it neurological? Is it like an actual block? Because f- to me, it feels like a, a like like the signals just aren't reaching my legs sometimes. So it's like, is it an actual neurological problem, or is it like you know a some, something else that is causing what feels like a neurological problem? It's just so impossible to tell. Yeah, for me, it's like it's not like there's a complete block. It's not like, it's never like my legs are completely paralyzed. I'm really, really lucky that everything is very consistent apart from in certain situations. So it's really predictable for me, which is what I don't get the kind of connection to FND with that because FND can be quite unpredictable. Hmm. Um, For me, it's just like they're dampened a little bit. There's some kind of dampening going on of the signal. Um, that's that's basically and it's just getting ever so slightly worse over time yeah it's not it's not been really drastic really really quickly it's taken over five years to get to the point where i am now um so and it very well could be related to the things that are already going on in my spine because obviously when you are looking for answers and nobody's trying to help you with them you look for the answers yourself you're told not to but you do try um so in in the groups that i'm in it's been observed that you can get neurological issues from a spondylolisthesis um if it's unstable or also from neck instability and interestingly interestingly enough my neck instability is at c3 c4 and that is supposed to be where the nerve comes out that supplies your stomach Hmm. so the vagus nerve oh wow interesting i do wonder whether it is all connected in that way but i don't know yeah still still waiting to find solid proof i guess yeah totally and like what you really need is what we all need which is a doctor to take us seriously to listen to run tests to try to connect the dots for us because we are not medical professionals. We don't know how to do that. We, we've like done so much research trying to figure ourselves out. You, 
and and you have to like bring suggestions to your doctor but then if you have a doctor who takes that personally which i have had as well a doctor who's like well uh this is my job excuse me uh i will do my job thank you and but they're not doing their job you know it's like well can you check for this thing it's like oh this thing that i didn't think to check well i'm sure that's not it it ends up being it the doctor doesn't want to help you because they have this like pride involved in and whatever's going on but you know, we don't we don't care about their pride. We only care about getting help and getting better. And it's it's just like this vicious cycle that can be Im- Im- feels impossible to break sometimes. But then we really need to like lean on the people around us and like lean on our support mechanisms in those moments. So what what are your support mechanisms? The horses, definitely, yeah. definitely the horses. I mean. When I was sort of diagnosed with the FND, it was sort of a blessing in that way because they told me that I was still allowed to ride. And in fact, they encouraged it because um, this is my fun fact that I always bring out. When you sat on a horse and the horse is walking and you're sat with the horse, um, it mimics the human walk stride. Mm. So this is why we have like riding for the disabled um, where they get uh, disabled children, adults on the ponies and have them just walk around for half an hour, do interesting things because it develops your leg muscles um, passively. So I can ride and walk further on a horse than I could ever walk. Um, and from riding, I developed a lot of muscle. And um, when they did my neurological test, like further down the line, the not like um, investigative tests, like the usual knocking on your knees and testing how strong you are kind of thing. Um, the neurology side was worse, but the strength in my legs was still equal to what it was the time before because I had gained more muscle. I had no muscle when it all started. Wow. So it was very, very obvious. Um, and when I gave, gained the muscle back, um, it became like less obvious. I could pass it off more. Um, and interestingly enough, um, due to Candy, my main riding horse, having various things going on, she's fine, just little things. I've not been able to ride for about six weeks and the amount of muscle I've lost has made it so obvious. Um, the amount of people coming up to me at the yard going, I can see you're struggling, are you okay? Kind of thing. Um, I'm, you know, really relying on my stakes more, um, you know, doing less in general because my muscle's just gone. Um, but when I can ride again, we will be, we'll be winning. And I know that I can gain the muscle back because I've done it once already. Um, but it's still been good to be able to be around them because I think if I didn't have them and I'd lost all the muscle from doing whatever else, I, th- I think I'd just be sat and I'd just, you know, wallow in it. But I've still got to go see to them and give them hugs and whatever and annoy them, film TikToks with them. So <laughs> they kind of keep me going even though you know, I can't be to my full potential. I can still enjoy it, which is nice. It's so important to have something outside of yourself that keeps you going. But yeah, like getting outside and getting some fresh air and taking care of something else sounds like a really healing, uh, really good thing to do inside of like a chronic illness maelstrom that you're living inside of. Yeah. And, you know, I listened to the podcast um, I save the podcast every week. I don't listen to it at home. I listen to it while I'm mucking out, while I'm doing the stables, because <laughs> having something going on just kind of keeps me moving, I guess. Totally. Because I'm focused on that, and I'm not focused on how much my back hurts right now. When I've got my own thoughts to listen to, 
sometimes it's like wow my back really hurts oh it really really hurts oh now my legs are really tired and that's all I can think of but when I'm listening to the podcast um I'm just I'm just listening to what's going on and I'm not thinking about what I'm doing as much so yeah, it does help me get awesome. those harder days as well I love that Th- and I do the same thing with like I listen to a ton of podcasts. I have a podcast on all the time if I'm not yeah. if I'm not doing something actively where I need to like you know be able to hear what's going on, I have a podcast on. If I'm like taking yeah. a shower or you know making breakfast, if I'm having a good day and I'm able to clean, um and it's that exact same reason. It's that it it quiets the inner voice that's like constantly telling me that I don't feel good, you know, constantly. Yeah. I need to have some distraction. Yeah, totally. We have yeah. a, a pain clinic here in, in the UK. Anyone with chronic pain can be referred to pain clinic. And like the main thing that we do is like, you know, calming that voice and knowing when it's correct and when it isn't, um, which is a really interesting like six week core thing that you go on. Um, it's really good. That's a really good thing about the NHS that you can do that for free. Wow. Um, but yeah, it is It's like that. Just just calming the voice. And that one of the things that was suggested was listening to a podcast or listening to mindfulness like videos and stuff like that. And that's like when I started listening to podcasts. Wow. How did you find this podcast? So um, I think I was searching up FND or searching up ankylosing spondylitis. Oh, really? There wasn't many when when I started listening, there weren't many out yet. Yeah. But I can't remember. There was, I think there was an ankylosing spondylitis and there was an FND, but I can't remember what time of the wow. year it was. That's fantastic. That's the dream is that, that's my goal, is that if people have a rare disease and they search for it, they have <laughs> at least, at least this podcast to like hear, you yeah. know, someone else's real life experience of living with the thing that they're dealing with. That's, that's what I really want. You're you're the first person who's ever told me that that worked. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Normally it's like people finding it through uh, TikTok or um, like someone that being on the show, sharing it that they saw or something like that. But like my real, you know, which is amazing, which is fantastic. I want that too, but I really want for like, if someone is searching for a rare disease, and finds this podcast and finds some comfort. Like that's, that's yeah. like how I originally imagined it working. Yeah, and that's really cool. Organically like that. I, wow. I listen through Podbean because I can download the podcasts and not have to use my mobile data. And it might've been, I don't know when, I really don't know when it was, but I literally just searched up and there isn't many that do what you do. Like the, the other couple that I found were, um, like surgeon training podcasts, so they were, they were too wordy yeah. um, and too strange and scary. And you weren't listening to like re- real people who would like live with it. Um, and then that's very different to how they teach medical students, from what I've seen. But yeah, I found it organically. I was just looking for sort of to to validate my experiences because obviously um, AS has been very up in the air for me. Um, as has FND. So those are the ones I search because I want to try and sort of see if I have the same experiences as other people. Wow. That is like, amazing. That's, I'm so glad you found the show. I, I'm still just like shocked that, that, you know, I can just make something and put it out in the world and other people can find it and, 
and all the I, way over here. I know in in Yorkshire. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's it's. I'm I'm just having a, a moment of my mind being blown a little bit. Um, you all going back to your um support mechanisms. You also mentioned your mom advocating for you. So it sounds like you oh, have yeah. some some family you can lean on to kind of knock down some doors on your behalf. Yeah, my mom has been absolutely brilliant. Let's hope she doesn't hear me in the next room talking about how good she is because her head might get too big. Um, <laughs> she she comes to all my appointments because I can't remember what's been said. A lot of it is sometimes like too much to even take in. Um, she she just helps me with everything. Yeah, everything like all my forms and everything that I can't do, and making sure I get to my appointments, making sure I remember my appointments, and like re- making sure that I remember to eat because I don't, I don't remember to eat because I don't have a ha- an appetite. Um, yeah. And just generally supporting me, um, coming to my horse shows and stuff as well. Um, yeah, she's just, she's just brilliant. That's amazing. I mean, this is something I think about a lot, but you know, having loved ones support you is the, th- the number one thing that is helpful. I think. And the number, the easiest thing to take for granted, for sure. It's, you know, like we all need support. We need our doctors to support us. We need our families to support us. You know, like I've always had the support of loved ones, but I have experienced over and over not having the support of doctors over and over and over. And it, it gets, you know, it gets better. Um, if you keep looking, (laughs) (laughs) well, the thing is like, if you keep cycling through doctors, if you, if the person that you're seeing isn't helping you find someone else, there's always another doctor and eventually someone will be helpful. And it might take, (laughs) you know, like dozens of doctors, hundreds of doctors. I I may have seen hundreds of doctors. Like legitimately, I may have seen hundreds of, I don't even, I, I, I stopped counting like a decade ago, but um, it's taken so many, you know. It's so hard to get a different doctor here. It's so mm. hard. They don't like to. They don't like to do it. I, I mean, I haven't got a rheumatologist at the moment because of what happened with the last one, um, and I haven't even gone into that. Um, and the neurologist that I just found recently, I only found after two years of trying to get a second opinion. Wow. Um, I ended up back at the same. Uh, from the same in the same hospital, the same unit, mm-hmm. but just with a different doctor because I refused to see another one. Um, long story short, I got told that I had an emotional girl brain um, and my legs were depressed, so I decided I weren't seeing him again. Oh my um, god! Let- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you were told you had an emotional girl brain and your legs were depressed. Yes. By a neurologist. Yes. This is this is what we are facing people. Like this is the level of horror that chronic chronically ill people are facing around the world on a daily basis. Like this is unfair, you know? It's so unfair. Uh, and I've been living with the emotional girl brain for so long. Um they referred <laughs> me to psychotherapy for it, which which faith and day psychotherapy would help. Um, and when I went to the psychotherapy, I did however many sessions and she was like, you are the most well-rounded patient. You have all the coping mechanisms in place. You have a positive outlook. Um, and after going through, I think 12 sessions with her, um, there's been no improvement in my, um, in my symptoms. So 
I'm officially undiagnosed as having an emotional girl brain. Um, it's just a girl brain now. <laughs> and now we're just going to see what, what else happens um, <laughs> while I wait for my MRI. Um, but yeah, this guy took me on because he does both the F&D side of the um, diagnostic um, whatever. But he also does like MS and stuff like that. So he's he's got both sides. Yeah. So he's going to and see if he can confirm FND or something else. Well, I'm glad it sounds like you're in better hands. And yeah, I mean, yeah. The, like the, the horrible reality is like that doctor, the emotional girl brain depressed legs doctor is never <laughs> going to help you. You know, like a doctor who's that much of a jerk, who's that bad mm -hmm. at their job is completely incapable of helping someone like you with a complex, hard to diagnose situation. That doctor is absolute yeah. trash. And we don't, we don't it need them, you know? And it, it wasn't even interested in helping me. No. Like I had to, I had to refuse to leave his appointment, I think, until he gave me flexion extension x-rays of my neck. Um, and those were the ones that proved the um, instability in my neck. Um, and then I didn't see him again. Yeah. There's a trend going where I tell them the test to do, the test finds out I'm right, and then they don't see me again. Um yeah, and that's just what? so, it's so messed up. And it's awful that it took two years to get the next doctor going. But like, that's the unfortunate reality. You know, our lives will, like days will tick by and life will yeah. tick by as you're waiting to get seen by a doctor who isn't a complete moron. And, and it's awful, but that's just the, yeah. it's the horrible reality is like, we just have to keep fighting because we don't, we're not given other options, you know? And like the only, the only comfort I have about that is that we're all experiencing that, you know, like we're all going through that. And it's not just you. If you have FND, that ha having your body not work is an emotionally distressing thing to have happen. Yeah. And I feel that FND is real. It is fully real. 100% yeah. real but the cause is just not fully understood yet right. and have been treated as if i have fnd and not in the way that i think fnd is but in the way doctors perceive fnd to be aka emotional girl brain for the best way to describe it i got treated horrifically yeah and as far as i'm concerned I feel like people with FND are way worse off than I am. I know we don't play the worse off game, but they have to deal with that and the, the unpredictability of it all and new symptoms and seizures and so much more than what I have to deal with. And then they also have to deal with the doctors who think they're just having fun and just, you know, having a seizure for a laugh kind of thing. And yeah. they have to deal with that. And having, I've, I'm, I've experienced that and I just, I can't imagine also being in the, that situation, if that makes sense. Like, I've just got a taste of what it's like. Yeah, and, totally. I, it, this and, is something that I yeah. that makes me so mad. It makes me so mad, mm -hmm. you know? like I've got friends with FND, and I've, I've heard how they've been treated. Yeah. Like, I'm friends with FND, and uh, yeah. it's just awful. And, and not all doctors are that way. You know, like, when we talked to Nolan on the podcast, yeah, yeah. Their, their doctor was very supportive. And they seem to be getting good help, which is incredible. And the, you know, the attitudes around FND are changing. The attitudes around chronic illness in general are changing, I feel like, because, you know, COVID just dropped this massive new 
long-term chronic illness onto the lap of the medical establishment where it's like, okay, I guess, I guess not everyone is lying. You know, some of these people yeah. might, must actually have something going on. So many people have pots from getting COVID. So many mm. people have pots now. Yeah. The, the pots like doubled or tripled in numbers since COVID. And also gastroparesis, uh, we've had more members come in from COVID as well um, because COVID seems to be sort of neurological in nature, I guess, the damage hmm. uh, is. I mean, one of my ponies, um, she's not a physiotherapist. She's like a muscle therapist. She'll kill me for getting it wrong. Um, she has long COVID and she's got pot symptoms, similar symptoms. Um, and... I mean, even after COVID, after being in hospital, she's been treated the same way. Like she's, you know, just being a bit lazy, fancying her sit down a bit more often. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I know that it's, it, it seems to be worse for women in general than for men. And I, I've had a horrible time <laughs> yeah. trying to get help. And I, I, I've yeah. never been told that I had an emotional girl brain with depressed legs like that, that would have made me so upset. Or if someone had just said that my legs were depressed, you know, like um, yeah. if we take- I was a bit out of it when he told me that, you yeah. know, that was when I was in hospital. I was a bit out of it. So I didn't have time to go through that at the time. Yeah. It was only after I realized how messed up it was. Yeah. I mean, I, I did have a doctor tell me is like, it sounds like you've been trying to figure this out for a long time. And it, you know, have you thought about just like, getting on with your life and just move on from this yeah, and i'm like as well. oh yeah, yeah uh yeah i, I <laughs> thank you for suggesting something completely unhelpful you you giant asshole you know like yeah. it's just the way we're treated is awful and it, you said something earlier about anxiety you know anxiety has been the number one uh thing that has been a preventative for me getting care is yeah. doctors accusing yeah. me of being anxious. So I've had yeah. to learn how to be like a Zen master around being chronically sick. You know, I've had to learn how to like dispassionately sit in a doctor's office and talk about the thing that is the most important thing in my life that yeah. like my health, my, my health, which is failing me and be able to talk about it with, with no emotion to even get yeah. a doctor to listen to me. And that's just so unfair. And I, I just I'm like, like smiling, but it's not funny because yeah. I've the exact same thing. I, you know, some people are angry criers. I cry when I'm angry and it's just something that happens. It's not that I weep, but just a little tear. I'll just, and I'll just cry. So when I get mad at the doctors, I have to like completely because the second that tear rolls down my cheek at being angry at being gaslighted, yeah. I am then the emotional girl brain girl again, because that's straight what they, they it's like. They want to jump to it. They're like, yeah. As soon as, as soon as you show any emotion, it's your emotions. You can't have emotions. Yeah. Emotions are the number one cause of neurological symptoms, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's just so, it's so messed up. It's so messed up. And like how many people spent, spent like so much of their lives undiagnosed when it was something that could have been solved or found if a doctor was willing to run tests. And mm -hmm. I'm like finally in this place now where I have a doctor who's running every test she can think of. And it's like overwhelming and I don't even know how to react to it. You know, it's like this, it's real. It's, I found it, it's happening. And now yeah. the terror is like, if she doesn't find anything, then it's, it could be unfindable, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But 
And, and also like the fact that when you're told over and over that you're, it's all in your head, it can turn yeah. into an anxiety disorder or, or something yeah. along those lines because like you get so upset by the way you're being constantly you know, treated horrifically by doctors, then you start to yeah. develop this like medical PTSD about going into a doctor and talking to them in the first place. And, yeah. and then they're like, oh, see, this is proof. This is proof that it's all in your head. You know, like you're more anxious than the last time I saw you. This is proof that it's, that it's your fault. So yeah, when I had psychotherapy, um, she was like, what about the big traumas in your life? And I was like, the only, the only traumas I have are medical related. And they yeah. all started after symptoms started. Like, yep. totally. Th that's, that's the only time where I've been like gaslighted or called names or the recent rheumatologist who asked me if I'd ever been abused as a child and other things um, to try and pin that on. And that those kind of things are traumatic, not whatever else happened kind right. of thing. Right. But like the other side to that is that if, you know, for people who are abused as children who have that trauma and have a neurological disease, that it's almost it's like impossible to get care. You know, it's like straight yeah. up impossible. And that that is just so un that's so unfair. It makes me want to like like that's smash they, my they computer into the ground. Yeah, that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to this isn't even for like neurological, this is for like what happened. The, another thing my hand is always red all the time. Um mm. Yeah, he was he was trying to pin it on something. He asked me very other questions, but I don't know whether it's like worth bringing it up. Um, but all things that I wasn't I, never happened to me ever. Um, and I said no to every single one. But he kept drilling me these questions because he wanted to pin it on that. And again, it's it's like with FND. It's like imagine if those things had happened to me, and I did have something going on that was that could be pre prevented, that could be put on treatment. Mm -hmm. Um. And that it was me. I mean, it's going to get missed anyway because he just ignored me and discharged me. But you know what I mean? Imagine if you were one of those people who then went on in life being told, no, it's fine, no, it's fine. I might be able to get treatment because, you know, I can go a different way because yeah. I haven't had that. It's, it's like a privilege for me, but it just makes me think what? It's just so backwards and so broken everywhere. It's backwards and broken, the end. Yeah. That's it. I, backwards and, and broken, like me, but not like me. I, I just, I wish that, I wish I could do something. You know, like, I want to, I want to scream about this. Like, it's a huge part of why I started this show is also, like, I, I want to scream about this at the top of my lungs that our system, our, the healthcare system on planet Earth is backwards and broken. And yeah. I, I used <laughs> to think it was just this country, but I'm wrong. It's happening to people all over the place, you know. Uh, That's why I want to come on the podcast because yeah. obviously I've heard of it from like from your side of the pond, but we don't, you know, we get kind of over overshadowed by people shouting how good the NHS is for being free, that they aren't willing to listen to people who have been failed by the system. Not always the people in it, sometimes the people in it, but yeah we're often failed by it and people don't want to listen because it's free or for for you guys yeah insurance covers it kind of thing at least you got there in the end or whatever people don't want to listen so i quite like that you've been you know putting it out there into the world and it's good for people who may not be able to speak out about it to hear it from others and even if they don't want to say anything they just know that 
they're not the only people who've gone through it. I know so many people who have been failed by the NHS who have come to me after I've spoken about it on Facebook or whatever, where they wouldn't have, you know, gone out and said it anyway. But that's why I wanted to come on because I wanted to, you know, give the perspective of people in England who, yes, are very grateful that the NHS is free at the point of service, but it's so incredibly flawed and failing so many people. Yeah. I'm I'm so I'm so glad you came on the show. I mean, I'm still like having a little bit of a mind blown moment that you found the show at all. But on top of that, like how much I've related to what you're what you've said. Yeah. And just like thinking back, I always think back to myself before starting this podcast and how how I thought that I was the only one. You know, like hundred oh, percent. I, I just I my my life is so different now. You know, it's so just knowing that there's so many of us all around the world going through this for completely different reasons or even similar reasons. Who knows? We're on, yeah. you know, maybe we'll be diagnosed with the same thing someday. Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> but, that would be funny, but not funny. I know. Like <laughs> there's been several people I've talked to on the show where it's like, yeah, we could absolutely have the same thing, but none of us know what it is because we can't get anyone yeah. to listen. So <laughs> it's just, but, but just knowing that it's not just me is is a yeah. fundamental change in my life that is so yeah. important to me and so valuable you feel so less alone yeah. because being ill is so isolating even if you've got people around you who kind of understand or even have the same thing maybe they've had a different experience yeah. but when you finally get to know that you're not the only one who's you know not being believed and you know treated poorly and everything yeah it just well, it builds you up a bit more and makes you a bit more confident in yourself. Absolutely. Totally. It helped because like we're all gaslit so much. We start gaslighting ourselves. You start trying yeah. to convince. Um, I have spent so much time trying to convince myself that the doctors were right, that I had a psychological problem so that I could get help because that's the only yeah. thing that doctors are willing to help me with. And I, I, I got myself to the place where I no longer even believed myself sometimes, you know, that yeah. I was sick. And like that has caused so much harm to me, like so much harm. And it's something where I won't be able to fully reckon with that until I can get a diagnosis. And yeah. But I feel like I'm going to get one. I feel like it's going to happen. Like I'm going to get diagnosed and whether or not I we're get better. Manifest. What's we're that? Manifesting right yes, we're, we're manifesting, manifesting it. it. Absolutely. That's, I, I believe. For ages that I'm manifesting that I will get a diagnosis. I will get an answer. Yeah or another just a solid answer that is that i can accept that makes sense to me and to my body yes yes that's i believe in that and whether or not it helps whether or not i get better that's secondary to me yeah. you know i, oh I, I God, yeah. i'm not even willing to manifest that because i'm focusing no. on step one which is an answer you're like the person who i've spoken to was literally like said that before i have it's not that I'm even bothered about getting, I am bothered about getting better, but like, if I don't get better than I am, absolutely fine. Just give me an answer. Yeah. Like, if I get worse, I'll deal with it. But we're beyond the point now of wanting to get better, if that makes sense. Yeah. I just it, want the Yeah. And how messed up is that? That our goal is, yeah. our goal isn't even to get better anymore. Our goal is to get an answer. 
And that's it. You know, I feel that very hardcore. Like I, I felt that for years now and going through that shift was really difficult for me, letting go of the idea of getting better because it was too painful to hold on to for every doctor's appointment to, to try to get better. Like that's not even something I think about anymore. (laughs) It's like, and every once in a while I'll go down a flight of fancy of, you know, what if I was diagnosed with something um, treatable? You saw it. You fantasize. It's weird that it should be fantasy at this point but you always want to hope a little bit yeah for some improvement even if it's not all the way better for some improvement like you always want to keep some hope out there that there's a magic surgery like on Grey's Anatomy um but it's good to have peace with the fact that it might not be that way yes um, and that's something in psychotherapy that we came up to straight away and she was quite shocked that I'd already reached that conclusion because a lot of people, obvi- very obviously, rightly so, struggle with it. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. I feel like, I mean, I, I, I feel like we could talk about this all day. I have to wrap <laughs> it up because my body's telling me it's time to take a nap. Same. Um, but man, what a great conversation. I just, I love doing this show. I, every conversation <laughs> is so good. And every time like I'm so surprised. Um, I'm sorry, what did you say? I love listening to it. Oh, thank it's you. Good I, every time. I, that means a lot to me. <laughs> uh, but I have to ask, you know, as I like to do at the end, you've you've been through a lot and you've been treated horribly. What have you learned that would be helpful for the next person going through what you're going through? Believe yourself. Just you know your body more than some person who's only spoken to you for five minutes who only has like the, the quick list of what's going on they don't even have the little things that you already mitigate in your day-to-day life by doing something a little bit different than everyone else would they don't know about those little things that all add up they don't know about how you live day-to-day and what you do to kind of get around it all and what you would be if you didn't do that they don't know that so believe in yourself. Absolutely. I feel the same way. Well, Caitlin, is there anything that you'd like to share with our audience? Any social media you'd like to direct us towards or anything else like that? Um, I'm a few different names in a few different places. Um, I'm on Instagram as Caitlin Paget underscore Pararider. Um, I'm on TikTok as Too Many Equines. Um, I have a portrait, pet portrait page on Facebook, which is Caitlin Paget, portrait artist. Um, so if you want pet portraits, I can ship to America. Um, yeah. uh, like I say, I'm on TikTok and Instagram, and I'm trying to be as active as possible on there and kind of share a bit more of the, the chronic illness side um, of things. Um, and like my, my Instagram page is all about the horses and trying to get out competing. Um, I compete against able-bodied riders as well. So I have that to contend with. So that's very interesting. Wow. Awesome. And I'll tag you on uh, Instagram and TikTok when I post this up at Major Pain Podcast on both platforms. Um, Thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. I mean, you know, just another absolutely incredible conversation. Your story is, is so relatable in so many different ways. And I'm just like really just honored to be able to share it and so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me and thank you for putting out the podcast like every week. Like I say, you've been my listening in my ear, talking in my <laughs> ear every time I walk out on a Monday or a Tuesday. 
um, yeah, so it's kept me going anyway. Well, I'm really, really glad to hear that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters Schmidt, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, and Alexandria Henderson. And our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, and Trish O'Brien. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.